0: Listener production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, Katrina Blowers and Tom Tilley here with you and today we're hearing from the plastic surgeon you go to if your breast implants go wrong. Professor Anand Deva sees every type of issue from pain and illness to what's known as double bubble and waterfall deformities. And he reckons Australian women aren't getting the full story before they go under the knife.
1: The overarching message that has to go through and has to be understood and accepted by a patient agreeing to undergo this procedure is that by putting an implant into the breast, you are signing up for more surgery to your breast or the implant or both.
0: Yeah, so I guess that's something I wasn't super aware of, Tom, is that, you know, it wasn't a one-and-done operation. Mm. Um, This is sort of, uh, as we're about to hear, um, uh, you you are signing yourself up for multiple surgeries. Um, So that's our briefing topic today with the so-called breast implant whistleblower, and that's straight after the headlines. It is Monday the 13th of November.
2: Australia's Foreign Minister Penny Wong has called for a ceasefire in Gaza over the weekend.
1: We all want to take the next steps towards a ceasefire, but it cannot be one-sided. Hamas still holds hostages, Hamas is still attacking Israel. international humanitarian law does require the protection of hospitals, of patients and of medical staff. And we do call on Israel to, to cease the attacking of hospitals.
2: Yeah, and two Australian Jewish organisations have pushed back on that, saying that under Article 19 of the Geneva Conventions, hospitals lose their protection if they're being used for military purposes. And they say Hamas are doing exactly that.
0: Meanwhile, in Gaza, Hamas says it is suspending hostage talks due to Israel's attacks on the Al Shifa hospital where the generators shut down, causing multiple deaths. Medics there say that patients, including babies, are still trapped. But over the weekend, we had a development on that front. Israel's chief military spokesperson saying that Israel's military will help evacuate babies at the request of hospital staff and then take them to safer hospitals. Penny Wong's comments, very interesting there, Tom, and likely to dominate parliament returning this week. Um, It'll be interesting whether um, Labor comes under some pretty intense questioning over what exactly its Middle East policy is, given that, you know, talks of a potential support for a ceasefire really puts us out of step with the US and the UK.
2: Yeah, it's certainly a big call to move to to that position of calling for a ceasefire, you know, and as she sort of touched on there, what that ceasefire comes with, you know, the conditions um, will be very hotly debated.
0: Tens of thousands of people have been rallying in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane in pro-Palestine protests over the weekend. And in London, 300,000 people hit the streets for what has been the biggest pro-Palestine march so far. It turned very ugly. There were 145 arrests. Many of them were counter-protesters from the nationalist group known as the English Defence League. And in Australia's Jewish community, around 5,000 people held a vigil in Sydney over the weekend for the people who died in the October 7 attack and they called for the return of the 240 Hamas-held hostages. It was Israel's 9-11. Yeah, and that's an important reminder.
2: Um, Those hostages are, are still being held by Hamas and are such an important part of any negotiations going forward. And, you know, there's, I guess, so much argument about the the thousands of people dying, um, but these 240 people that are still held hostage are a really important piece of this whole story. And we touched on federal politics before. There's new polling out showing uh, times are getting tough For Anthony Albanese as the cost of living pressures really start to bite in the electorate. So this is a new resolve political monitor. It shows 34% of voters say Peter Dutton and the coalition would do a better job of managing the economy compared to 27% for the Labor government. That is interesting, Katrina. That's an issue that's starting to work for Peter Dutton, work in his favour.
0: Yeah, and this whole kind of um, narrative that Anthony Albanese spending too much time swanning about overseas and not mm. enough time back here with Aussie butlers. you know, addressing cost of living issues. I don't know about that. I mean, he, he stayed here for quite a while. There were some very important um, international issues that he needed to get on top of, but yeah, you know, he probably does need to come back and start talking cost of living because it hasn't been uh, as much a part of uh, what he has been addressing. You know, we've had The Voice and we've had all these trips. So, yeah, in the lead up to Christmas especially, that is going to be front of mind.
2: Yeah, it's a pretty um cheap trick, that one. Oh, you know, he's spending all this time overseas. He's spent, he's done a similar amount of trips to All previous prime ministers, the coalition, the last three coalition prime ministers. So it doesn't really stack up, but you got to keep an eye on all the issues. And, you know, that trip to China was extremely important and will be great for Aussie exporters. But yeah, he does have to keep working very hard back here at home and cost of living is the main issue people are facing. So. We'll probably see a lot more of Albo this week uh, as Parliament hits what will be a pretty rocky question time.
0: And wedding bells for Barnaby Joyce, who's married his former staffer. It's been nearly six years since his relationship with uh, Vicky Campion was made public. Uh, Joyce had to resign as Deputy Prime Minister and the Nationals leader as a result, but they've since had two sons who were apparently page boys at the wedding. Uh, Tom, no word, though, on whether Joyce's four daughters to his ex-wife were there. Uh, Earlier we saw this uh, social media video that was a Apparently a joke made by one of his daughters saying, you know, getting ready for uh, my dad's wedding that I'm not invited to and she was wearing her mum's wedding dress. Ooh. Um, Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, Barnaby Joyce and Vicky Campion tied the knot in a bush wedding on um, Barnaby's family estate. She wore an Akubra and some knee-high black cowboy boots under her wedding dress. Um, it looked like it would have been a pretty fun day.
2: Yeah. I love the outfits there. Good old bush wedding. Fits, you know, very much on brand for Barnaby. But, um, yeah, that question about his four daughters from his first marriage, that is a very interesting one. And that social media video, if it was a joke, um, wow, very strong material from the daughters there. <laughs> um, I do know people that know them. Apparently they're a lot of fun and so, look, maybe it was, but there's obviously a fair bit of pain still there. So, yeah, but they kept it private enough that we – didn't get photos from inside, just people arriving and we we don't know what happened inside.
0: We definitely don't. All right, Tom, we are about to hear from the plastic surgeon you go to when breast implants go very wrong. Figures show around 20,000 Australian women are getting breast implants every year. But as you're about to hear one plastic surgeon is ringing the alarm bell he's saying there are all kinds of things that can go wrong and that women should be told about but they're not getting that information such as to give you one example breast implants aren't for life and you're signing yourself up for potentially a bunch of future surgeries. Professor Arnand Deva is going to be speaking out on the new podcast, Surgery Secrets Beauty's Dark Side, but today he is our guest on The Briefing and joins me now. When it comes to risky cosmetic procedures, where do you think breast implant surgery sits on that scale of most risky to least? Well, look,
1: um, I've had a long uh, relationship with these devices, started to research them, gosh, close to two and a half decades ago. And I would consider uh, any sort of permanent long-term device being put into the body as one that's associated with the highest level of risk.
0: Before we get into the particular kinds of risks that it um, brings about, let's talk a little bit about what that procedure looks like for people who don't know. Where does the incision go? Is the device or the implant placed above or beneath the muscle? And what's the recovery period like for each one?
1: If you look at numbers in Australia, we talk about roughly fifteen to 20,000 women having implants put in every year. Three quarters of them are for cosmetic surgery, so that forms by far the majority of the market. But let's not forget 25% are for cancer as well. Implants come in all shapes and sizes and also in different sort of surfaces as well, focusing on cosmetic surgery for the moment. The procedure is generally done one to two hours as day surgery. Uh, there are a number of ways in which we can put an implant into the breast but generally you have well you have to make an incision through the skin and that skin incision is most commonly performed under the breast uh, and it's hidden. And depending on how big you want to go, what your anatomy is, um, the preference of the surgeon, one can choose either a round or sort of spherical implant or an anatomic or teardrop implant. Uh, And once again, depending on uh, the anatomy of the patient or the anatomy of the breast, the surgeon could choose to put the implant above the pectoral muscle or partly below the pectoral muscle. So uh, in short, there are many, many different options for not just the implant but where the implant's placed. But it's really, really important that uh, the procedure is catered to the patient.
0: All right. Well, let's talk now about what can go wrong. We hear terms, you know, like waterfall or double bubble or capsular contracture. They don't sound good. They don't sound like things you would want. What are they and how common are things like that?
1: What happens when you put an implant into a breast is you, you create two Types of complications. One is complications related to the actual implant and one is the effect of the implant on the breast. But I think before I get into the detail, the overarching message that has to go through and has to be understood and accepted by a patient uh, agreeing to undergo this procedure is that by putting an implant into the breast, you are signing up for more surgery to your breast or the implant or both. So... I think that has to be made really, really clear um, because if you have doubts or you don't want to sign up for more surgery and more cost and, you know, the the risk of complications, then, as I said, it's elective surgery, so just choose not to have it. In terms of the complications, well, let's focus on the implant-related complications first. So implants are not lifetime devices. They're man-made and they have got a degree of risk of failure. The commonest complication is uh, what's called capsular contracture. So you alluded to it before. And essentially, when an implant goes into the breast, the body's very clever. It forms a a thin membrane to kind of seal off the foreign body from the rest of your biology. In normal uh, circumstances, the capsule is thin, it's pliable. If I was to examine a breast with an implant in it, it would not be something I could feel. Uh, Hence, the breast and the implant kind of almost join as one. In some patients, and this was a much bigger problem in the early days, the capsule uh, becomes thicker and thicker, almost forms like a a thick scar tissue. So the first symptom a woman might complain about is pain, a feeling, a hard edge of the implant, and then ultimately as this capsule becomes thicker, it actually starts to squash the implant, cause folds, deformity, and ultimately so uh, tight that it can actually rupture the implant. Implants can rotate, they can rupture even without capsular contracture. That term is called silent rupture Uh, and silicon can be initially contained within the pocket or or the capsule and silicon can also find its way out uh, into the breast and ultimately into the rest of the body and that's not great because it it can cause uh, inflammation and problems. And implants um, can also over time uh, generate a very rare but real cancer. Uh, So this is another area of study. Uh, It's a type of blood cancer, so not a breast cancer, uh, but immune sort of cancer. And we think once again, it's related to underlying inflammation. Let's talk then about complications related to the breast itself. So the commonest uh, symptom that women uh, suffer as a result of breast implant insertion is pain. Breast pain is common even without Uh, breast implants and can obviously vary with uh, the menstrual cycle but putting an implant in there can certainly potentiate pain in some women and it's around 20 or 30 percent so that's not nothing. The pain can be uh, mild or moderate in most cases but in some women it can be quite severe and affect things like exercise and work. Um, Other changes to the breast relate to, uh, you talked about the waterfall deformity. In America, they call it the Snoopy deformity, which uh, is probably even uh, less uh, attractive. But what happens is the implant stays high, but the rest of the breast tissue with time, gravity, children, breastfeeding falls off. So when you look at it from the side, it looks like the breast is falling off the implant. And then certainly issues related to pregnancy, breastfeeding, weight loss and weight gain, these are things, and ultimately menopause, um, all affect the volume of the breast and those uh, changes to the breast that normally occur through a woman's lifespan can significantly impact the outcome and cause in itself deformity and, and certainly exacerbated by the presence of an implant.
0: If you got, say, implants when you're 25, when would you have to get those replaced?
1: There is a kind of common myth that after 10 years, they have to be replaced. I don't agree with that. The first part is, yes, being informed and educated as these implants go in. The second part of managing implant complications is that all women with implants need to have annual surveillance, annual checks, not just of their implant, but of their breast. You know, as you get older, of course, there's a risk of breast cancer and having an implant and and breast cancer has got some nuances in terms of picking up the cancer. So, Uh, I do think it it should be mandatory and it should be explained to the the patient and offered to the patients. I'm your surgeon. I'm doing your surgery. By the way, you're going to see me every year for the rest of your life or my life, whichever ends first. And we're going to incorporate screening for some of these complications. In my experience, if things are done well, the implant is, is matched to the patient's anatomy and the procedure is done to the highest degree of skill, then some of these implants actually lasts a lot longer and you can have long-term, stable, wonderful results. Uh, I know because uh, I do my own surveillance over a long period of time. So some of the women I put implants in, you know, 23, 24 years ago when I started practice still come to me every year. We've, we've grown old together. We share gossip uh, and, and life stories. Some of the, uh, uh, the things I tell patients are that uh, uh, you know, the result you have today may not look the same in 10 years. And I think that's, that's an important uh, lesson as a surgeon, to see your own results and deal with your own complications.
0: There's been a lot of talk lately, especially on social media, about breast implant illness and uh, many women sharing their explant mm-hmm. journeys. Is this a medically recognised condition? And do we have any idea about how many people this affects?
1: Yes, look, it's an area actually of our current interest and research. So, in the 90s in the US, uh, a series of scientific publications linked silicon breast implants to autoimmune type disease. And we're talking about where the immune system attacks your body. So things like rheumatoid arthritis, where the immune system attacks the joints, lupus, where the immune system attacks your kidneys and your skin. So these are not particularly nice, nice diseases. And so that led to actually a whole series of uh, events culminating in a, a huge uh, court action, which bankrupted the first breast implant manufacturer, Dow Corning, and it led to actually a moratorium, a ban on silicon in the US for over a decade. Um, so remarkable. Following that, um, a lot of work then went in to look at sort of population-based risk. And there were a series of, of scientific publications that really sought to answer the question, are silicon implants associated with autoimmune disease? And the data at that time certainly showed that there wasn't an additive risk. And and, and that ultimately then led to the decision by the US regulator to, uh, you know, recommence the use of silicon implants. There's been, I think, particularly with social media, a a, a sort of coalescence of women who have shared some of these sort of wide-ranging symptoms which relate to joints, to hair, to chronic fatigue, uh, coupled with, uh, you know, severe anxiety and depression, You ask whether this is a recognised medical thing. The answer is no, not yet. A lot more work needs to be done in terms of uh, looking at what may be driving these symptoms and then ultimately linking it back to potentially inflammation around implants. But what I can say to you is that we've just presented our first six months data. Now, the study, in short, and I don't want to go into the details of clinical research, but when you design a trial to try and uh, generate an answer... Uh, you need to have uh, subjects that have the condition and ultimately you want to try and match that to women without symptoms and look for differences. We have listed now over 300 women in Australia who we are following. The plan is to follow these women up for about two years. So at the six-month mark, what we've shown, and this is paralleled in two other big studies in the US and Europe, is that these women get remarkably better. So uh, their symptoms drop significantly, the severity of the symptoms also drop significantly, Uh, And that's wonderful because, um, you know, at least we can offer these women some treatment.
0: And finally, for anyone listening who is considering going down the explant surgery route, either for, you know, Mm -hmm. aesthetic reasons or because they feel like they've got some symptoms that are associated with their implants, what do they need to know? Are there any risks or any sort of quirky things that could pop up that perhaps aren't being publicised? Look,
1: uh, we've seen the rise of the explant industry and I I think it's quite sad because the commercial drivers that set up, you know, breast augmentation as a commercial business, uh, in Australia at least, uh, has now culminated in a a huge class action against uh, the Cosmetic Institute, uh, which is still ongoing, where, you know, a lot of women were harmed. In the same kind of almost sad way, I do think women can be pushed down an explant path and been told that, you know, the only thing that's going to cure them is a aggressive on-block capsulectomy, which, by the way, is only used for cancer surgery rather than benign surgery. Explant surgery is not easy. I do a reasonable number of them. Explant, particularly for benign disease, has to be, uh, once again, a whole process of informing the patient, uh, making sure that they understand what the risks are, What we've shown is that uh, women do get better with a partial or a total capsulectomy. So aggressive surgery in this instance may not be necessary. And my hope is that they see someone who will give them a a truthful, transparent answer. Important that these women with systemic symptoms be worked up for other underlying disease. We've picked up iron deficiency, we've picked up multiple sclerosis. um, So there are other causes of these symptoms that need to be excluded before you go down the explant route. And that's really, really important.
0: That was Professor Dava, who will also be speaking out on the new podcast, Surgery Secrets, Beauty's Dark Side. And this podcast is presented and produced by Michael Fraser and Madison Johnston. They're the consumer advocates behind some of Australia's biggest corporate exposés, including wage theft and misconduct at 7-Eleven, Domino's Pizza and the retail food group. So it'll be really interesting to hear what their major reforms are that they've uncovered are pushing for in our cosmetic surgery industry. Well worth a listen. Listener.